This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a pioneer of virtual reality. She has collaborated with PBS Frontline, Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times to create impactful virtual reality experiences depicting real-life events. Nani is the program director of ASU's Center for Emerging Media and Narrative, as well as the founder and CEO of Emblematic Group. Coming up, she joins me to talk about the importance of connection and empathy when telling stories and how the immersive experience can create a feeling of duality of presence. Stay tuned for the real deal in virtual reality, Nane De La Pena. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, la, la. Hey, Nani. Hey, thank you so much for having me here, you guys. I am curious. All of what you do stems back to being a storyteller. And I wonder when you first got that strong tug to storytelling. Wow. You know, I don't think I ever remember not having that strong tug to storytell. I can think of elementary school trying to craft stories, sometimes emulating great authors and stealing their narrative lines. I remember writing basically a mirror short story of a Ray Bradbury piece. But that kind of way you start, you take that sort of material and you start understanding the structure even by emulating it. And I was trying to wrestle with that for as long as I can remember. But I had this other really weird flip side of me that was very interested in international politics and in larger humanitarian goals. And I think that struggle and then throw in the artist component into the spicy mix is something that really didn't gel, I guess, until I started doing this. So I started doing immersive narrative storytelling where I could really combine all the things. I could talk about important stories. I could talk about stories that could be accessible to anybody around the globe. I could really try to help structure the future of storytelling. We're just barely on the cusp now of our three-dimensional future and the way that we're going to experience and share stories. I mean, with every camera, you know, every phone already is showing a LiDAR camera. And what does that camera do? It lets you capture your world in three dimensions. It's not a flat world that we live in. And now we're just getting the tools to be able to capture and share and make story with something that represents where our world really is. I have noticed in your storytelling, empathy plays a very, very big part of once you've immersed, do you call it a participant or a viewer or a user? What do you call the person that's wearing the VR headset? Participant's a good word, but it's too lengthy. I've used viewer many times. That's a piece of vernacular that I hope somebody else can help me figure out. You're raising a very good question because I don't feel like we're, we've completely decided, you know, viewer was a made up word once television came into being. So we need some similar. It almost feels to me like they're a character in the story because they suddenly in the immersion, they become a part of what's happening around them. I have a term for that. I call it duality of presence because you know that you're here, but you feel like you're there too. 
And a lot of us understand that feeling of being transported when we're really gripped by a novel or by a movie, you feel like you're there. I mean, you know, how many times have you jumped at a movie theater in a scary scene? It's because your body's been along for the ride. Well, the immersive experience takes it to an even fuller level where really your whole body is involved. I mean, really, we experience the world with our entire body, right? Not just our mind. And I think that's what the immersive narrative does. So this idea of duality of presence allows us to tap into that same kind of energy where we feel like we're there, even though I cannot tell you how many times I've had this comment. I felt like it's there, but I knew I was here too. That's a really interesting space to occupy and, and one which I really celebrate. Tell me how much empathy plays into the experience. Sometimes people will push back on the term empathy. I would push back on the pushback, meaning you don't just put the goggles on and are immediately transported into a situation where, you know, you feel empathy for whatever you're witnessing. The storytelling still has to be good, right? You still have to make the story a quality one in order for people to understand a situation or a scenario. But if you do that correctly, and if you do that well, I truly believe this feeling that you're immersed on scene in a story creates a connection that is unique to this new medium. And Chris, that empathy that you're talking about, even more important right now that we look for as many ways as we can to connect with each other. We're facing some really incredible challenges at the moment, and we need to be in the lifeboat rowing the same direction. And I feel like uh, the empathy part of our world, I just got sent something on a, a group that's doing new work on studying love. And they're trying to connect researchers who are working in love as a, a professor at uh, University of North Carolina. She's amassing uh, a number of professors together to study love. And I, I'm like, oh, I mean, it seems like so obvious, right? But yet it's still a relatively new field of research and one which, you know, how do we think about approaches that give us some clear ideas on not just the study of, but by sometimes by studying things you can help. I, I always approach these things as an optimist. I'm a big supporter of humanity, and I feel like people are studying and focusing on division as a way to get power, to get money, to get... So that's happening in politics, it's happening in religion, it's happening in sexuality, it's happening in so many places where it seems to be binary, like pick a side. It's an automatic series of fears and things that divide us. So a study on love, a minor in empathy, we could all use the core things to come back, to balance and to focus, because we really are disjointed and overwhelmed by technology in other ways, by the telephone always giving us messages and everything being fight or flight at all times. I don't think the human body is meant to receive so many immediate, I need a response ASAP kinds of things. We talk a lot about the way that universities have felt being under threat by, you know, humanities departments not being funded. In order to really balance the STEM work, which as you can, as you know, I'm a very big advocate of, but we need that A, we need that STEAM, we need the arts, and we need humanities to also help inform the kind of decisions that can be made around, you know, we already know pretty clearly about the kind of AI work that only recognizes white people. A friend of mine was describing how he had a partner who was black and the AI they're working on for an AR project would recognize the painting behind his partner. It would recognize him and only the painting behind him. Humanities are, are really working hard in these areas and we need STEM to do uh, larger partnerships with these arts and humanities in order to help shape, hopefully, thoughtful constructs as we adopt technologies in the future. I want to give our listener some context to some of your previous projects, just so that as we continue to discuss this, 
They know a little bit about what you've developed and what's been going on in your world. Your storytelling with virtual reality, it allows the person to feel present on the scene. And it was done so well in some of the early work after Solidarity, I believe is the one you did, which was where you put some folks in the Gitmo prison. Is that right? It's gone Gitmo, was done in 2007, was actually done in Second Life, and it was a virtual Guantanamo Bay prison. I was struggling as a journalist. How do you get people to understand a place that's off limits, most citizens and press? And I partnered with a digital artist named Peggy Wilde to create a virtual Gitmo. And it's after I made that that I was like, oh, I could use this for all kinds of journalism. And then the next piece, we made one where we put you in the body of a detainee in a stress position that was done with the Event Lab in Barcelona, Mel Slater and Maria Sanchez Vives. And then the piece that I think shifted the needle was Hunger in Los Angeles. And that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival as their first virtual reality piece in 2012. Finally, the piece I think you might be talking about is After Solitary, which was done with Frontline. We were able to get access through Frontline's incredible reporting to a real solitary confinement cell in a main prison. And we had somebody locked in the cell for three hours doing a capture to make something called photogrammetry, which is a three-dimensional capture of a space that you can literally walk around in a one-to-one way. So that was after solitary. So that's kind of the scope. Hunger was janky, digital, both early technology. And given that I built it with 700 bucks, my own money, and a lot of favors by amazing people, you can imagine it had its, it was pretty rudimentary. And yet by putting people on scene and hunger, which was used real audio from a day where a man with diabetes who didn't get food in time, and he collapsed into a, a diabetic coma on the street. And using that audio, we rebuilt it as best we could with motion capture, et cetera, and put people on scene. And that was when people were like, oh shit, this is how stories can be told three-dimensionally. And I think that helped open an avenue of nonfiction storytelling in immersive ways. It very much opened my eyes when I started looking at some of the pieces, because I'm an old school dad who's not into that much gaming. And the only virtual reality is when my kids did bring some goggles in one time, and they put them on me to knock something away with a sword or do something. And all they were doing was laughing at how dumb I looked in the living room. (laughs) Um, So the gaming aspect of it didn't intrigue me as much as what I see the work that you're doing and being online at the LA food bank, take the goggles off and different stories being in tears or feeling that great surge uh, that you feel when you're connecting with another human being is really powerful stuff. And also just as you describe these various projects, a person wouldn't know what it would be like to be on solitary confinement. So you're really using the technology in probably a really advanced psychological way too for people to get the experience. One of the things I wonder for you is it seems like you start all the stories from maybe a completely truthful place. And in the case of found audio, you're building your atmosphere and your scenes around existing uh, journalistic audio. Is that right? That very much was what informed the earliest pieces. As capture has gotten better, we're able to put people on stage and capture them in full volume and videogrammetry and like kind of holograms. So that does help us to do these kind of interviews. But you still have this issue of like, you know, you don't want to have a talking head any more than you want to have a talking body. So you still have to think about how do you construct these interviews in a way where you're, you're also telling story. It really varies for me now. I'm building a piece around Lyme disease 
And we're using quill to represent somebody who's passed away, a quill animation from Lime. We have another one that's challenging and funny and great. Um, we're building a game on great hotel trashings and music history, mostly rock and roll, but there's some other people too. I'm calling it a rockumentary, like a VR, you know, rockumentary, but we're still, you know, figuring out how best to give the person agency in a crazy story like that and still make sure we stay true to the journalism, but let people have fun trashing. That's hilarious, meaning that they can just it go pell-mell in the room and, oh my God, that's going to be popular. <laughs> I hope so. I think we, we could use a release, right? Right. You don't get a hotel bill afterwards. So Yeah, the New York Times is like, what are we going to do with our COVID rage? I'm like, here we go. Yeah. Rage on, right? <laughs> yeah. Entertainment in containment. So how long does it take to complete a VR story from not just the notion, but let's say from the, when you sort of set your mind this is going to be the story to the point that the technology and the designers, how long does that take to come around? We'd like to say three to six months, but I just finished a project that I did in partnership with the Japanese American National Museum and with the amazing documentary uh, filmmaker Sherrod Yamato on a kid named Stanley Hayami, who was put in one of the Japanese American concentration camps during World War II. And he was an incredible artist and writer. And we took his drawings, we brought his drawings to life, but we also scanned a real barracks. So you're in the barracks, understanding how small it was for him, but also his vivid imagination. And with Stanley, he got pulled to the front lines. Like some of these kids, they would shove him on the front lines of World War II and leave their parents locked up. And he died 10 days before the war was officially over, trying to rescue another soldier. His niece became my narrator. But that piece ended up taking, you know, off and on working on about two years, maybe two and a half from when the first, the diary was first brought to me. So that piece went through a lot of changes and these things are hard to make. I would say for sure in that one, I ended up in the red again. I think if I have a bad habit, it's that it's really hard for me to get, let stuff go out the door until I feel like they're right. Well, I, I think that's a nod to your integrity because- this is storytelling that could certainly be taken over by the technology. But as long as that those core values stay in place, I think you're, there's a, a big horizon for the many stories you can tell. I wonder what your dreams are like. If you're working in virtual reality all day long and then you take this off, what happens at night for you? Are you steeped in imagination working on those stories or are you able to sort of shut it off? I think it depends on the story. Stanley Hami's story deeply affected me. I still sometimes will call up the director, my co-writer, and just start bawling on the phone with her over him because he was so brilliant and such a humanist and such a deep thinker and such a beautiful character. It makes me so upset that he died in this unnecessary way. Mm -hmm. So somebody like that, I just thought about him day in and day out. Obviously, trash is its own kind of silly, funny thing. And so trash is easier to just let go. But when you're trying to be sensitive, and I also had the honor and the privilege to try to tell this story and represent this family's for, for Judy Hayami, who never got to meet her uncle, those things deeply affect me. And sometimes I think, okay, I, I've got to take a step back because the Lyme story is equally just another person. I've been working on this for a couple of years now, slowly. That piece was meant to have a lot more photogrammetry and videogrammetry in it because of COVID. We had to rethink the entire piece. We couldn't get access to neonatal wards. She was the woman I'm talking about. She was a pediatric nurse and amazing woman. The one like the Westchester County Pediatric Nurse of the Year was very involved with babies, but got sick with Lyme. And at the time, they gave us some antibiotics and decided she was got to have been cured, but she wasn't. And what happens is it's actually really representative of what's happened to a lot of Lyme patients. So telling Vicki Logan's story or telling Stanley Hyami's story sometimes can, it can be 
a lot. And I think of journalists a lot who don't get enough, you know, help to report on stories that, that can be traumatic. So it's nice to have something like Trashed to laugh a little bit. Whenever I, whenever I work on Trash, I just, there isn't a moment on Trash when I go to look at archive or footage or every single time you laugh. So because the stories are so completely... You know, Keith Moon dropping cherry bombs. Uh, he used to carry uh, cherry bombs with him so he could drop them into toilets, right, at his hotel rooms. This one band I'm going to feature called The Plugs, they were at the Edgewater Hotel in Seattle, which, like, literally is on the end of a pier so that, like, your window overlooks the ocean. And they had a game called Sink or Drink, and they would try to chuck all the furniture in succession. It had to get, like, three things out the window, and they had to sink or else you had to drink. So, like, you know, like right. throwing all your hotel furniture out the window is a, you know, anyway, like I said, those ones make you laugh. I can, I can see how that could be a palate cleanser from the other stories, which you're doing a very deep dive into emotionally raw experiences. And I wonder in some ways that trauma is being captured for the person who is participating at that point. Have you ever dealt with anybody coming off of a story and feeling something where they needed some additional therapy or triggered something? 1000%. So first off, before people do our pieces, I try to be really clear what people are going to go see. We put up signs, we put up notices, we warn people, etc. But the other thing I started doing after hunger, when I realized how deeply and profoundly I was affecting people, because I didn't know. And also with hunger, because I had no money, the man does recover. He goes into diabetic coma, but he does recover in real life. And the piece that I made, I didn't have enough money to record two ambulance workers sitting him up and talking to him, right? I just, you can hear the ambulance workers going, okay, great. I'm glad you're better. I think it's time to take you over, give you a ride to the hospital, sir. So you can hear the audio, but you don't see it. And people thought he died. And I realized how traumatic that was for people. I still feel terrible about that. And recognized afterwards that there had to be something else. So whenever we do installations at film festivals, we try to provide some space to reflect, to recover. So with Project Syria, which puts you on the street in Aleppo when a bomb goes off and a young girl singing, etc., takes you to a, a refugee camp, we cut up Damascus cloth because Syria, Damascus is, you know, Syria is where the cloth comes from. And everybody could take a piece of silk and they could also write their name on a, a card that we hung into a map of Syria with a piece I did about a, a guy named Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, who was murdered by Border Patrol. We put up like this chain link fence at Tribeca and let people write notes to the family of condolence. And then we took all those notes and we delivered them to the family. So we try to be thoughtful about like, what could we, we're asking people to experience these very intense stories. How can we now offer them some ways to have like a therapeutic moment or a thoughtful moment, contemplative moment afterwards. And I'm not saying that what we did is perfect, but we try to consider this as an important uh, part of the piece. It seems like a very important debrief or a way to sort of come down from a story as opposed to thrust them back into the real world with all this raw emotion on their sleeve, which is thoughtful. So let's talk about the collaborating with designers and artists. What's that process like? Because you have to build the whole world once the story comes together. The first thing I can say is that making this stuff is very, very hard. The methodologies remain very intensive. You should ask me about reach.love, which is a platform and trying to build slowly to help create a button-based system so people don't have to do all the learning we did. The people who work with me, generally, they want to do stories for good. On the Lime Project, I've been very lucky to collaborate with a company called Paper Crane. These were guys who came out of Activision, really talented. Uh, and 
they want to do some stories for good. They have really interesting creative ideas and they're very open. That's the other thing is you need to be kind of open because usually you're building an uncharted territory. We still don't have a vernacular like, oh, that's the VR close-up. That's the thing that people have to be open. And I, I have to say, if you're doing journalism, I don't think there's any journalists on, you know, except for maybe a few friends we won't mention who have a income journalistically or documentary or that's super high. So people who come to work on this stuff generally know that they're working on something that I try to run things relatively in like a flat organization that like anybody can have an idea and I want to hear everybody's ideas. I try to make it a really creative space for people and where they can feel fulfilled even if I, you know, our financial recompense is certainly nothing compared to almost, you know, any other technology related paychecks. So that's the first thing you got to come in kind of open and ready to be creative and really free. That doesn't always work for everybody. I think some people come in and go, this is so amazing. You're, you know, it's very, have a very romantic ideal about it. And then they come in, they realize it's such hard work, but it's, really gratifying when you finish a piece like the Hayami piece that premieres at Tribeca and then gets invited to Cannes and then gets invited to Taiwan and then gets invited to BFI and then gets, I mean, it's being invited all over the world. People can feel that even if I wouldn't let it get out the door until it was ready and that can feel a little frustrating sometimes, I think at the end people feel gratified that they participate in something that was so a remarkable piece. It must be fairly interesting to go from intensely working on a story in the lab and with your team to it being released and then there being this sort of big change to it being visible and you being at parties and talking about it. Like it must be this pendulum must always be swinging back and forth. The other moment that I feel like I'm at personally right now is I really want to help other artists do their own work, right? I love what I do, but I want to do less work, a little bit more thoughtful. And I'll, uh, if you ask me a little bit about one of the projects I'm obsessed with, I'll let you know. That's one of the reasons why I've gone to ASU because I've tried doing, you know, interns and apprenticeships and supporting other artists in ways that I can, like giving them facilities or the thing about, you know, this position at Arizona State University, this to be a founding director for something that's just starting, it gives me an opportunity to really scale the way that I can help and reach other artists who want to get involved in this field. I've made a lot of work. And I really just want to help others now realize their dreams in this field. And I need to be you know, a little bit more thoughtful about my pieces. And I wouldn't say that about the ones we've talked about today. I've done a lot of commercial work too, because that's how you survive. You hustle. The joy is that I'm able to run a center that can help a lot of people, but it also allows me to focus on like a piece that I'm slowly working on now as I'm remaking The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodor Dreyer, which established the close-up. It's a fantastic film. I really recommend watching it. I introduced Alejandro Gonzalez Ineritu to VR. So Alejandro, um, who is the director of Revenant and Birdman, etc., he did a piece called Carri Arena, and I, and I worked with him on it. He got the special Oscar for that, and he kindly thanked me on the stage. It was kind of cool. I would say it's more than kind of cool. It's very cool. <laughs> He's agreed to be a producer on the project, but I'm making it slowly because I'm thinking a lot about it. I'm thinking about what does it mean to be doing embodied filmmaking? There's a scene where she jumps from a tower. She squeezes through the bars to escape from the English capture, but she's quite high up, and she becomes quite injured, and they recapture her easily. That's the kind of woman she was very brave this moment in time that we know of that we've all been in like when the accidents happen and the way that time just suddenly stretches before you hit so i have this kind of vision of the viewer seeing the ground but you're 
frozen with the wind and stuff and you're floating next to her like you know you're going to hit but you haven't hit yet and this moment of knowing what the next piece is but you can't you can't do that in the medium have a viewer float a few feet from the ground face down right what else lets you do that nothing so i'm kind of exploring what are the best parts of this new medium for thinking about story well you always have to be thinking about the spatial nature of your narrative every absolutely where it is what's on every side of it what's above it anywhere they want to look you've got to be sure that that's supporting the story or mirroring what you want to share. That's pretty amazing. I'm going to just go back to your, the Guardian and Engage It. They dubbed you the godmother of virtual reality, which you probably hear from everybody you talk to. But I wonder what responsibility you now have. My godparents send me $3 in a card on my birthday. I know that, that you were really at the forefront of developing this content. Is there some responsibility you feel uh, having been at that early thing in terms of your right now, what you're about to do with this new position and so forth to giving access and allowing folks to develop? The godmother, you know, that came when I was had Project Syria at Sundance and the Engadget reporter was like in my base and people kept walking by and say, oh, yeah, Nani introduced me to VR. Nani 3D printed the first headsets with Palmer Lucky, you know, before well, actually, when Palmer started Oculus, even with the Facebook, the headsets were not full walk around. So I was having to 3D print my own headsets and walk around. The early days, I was doing a lot of this stuff to start this thing. And so this engadget reporter was like, oh, you're like the godmother. You know, people kept walking by. Oh, she, that's how it started. But you're right. You know, I, it's funny. Somebody just asked me to join a, a very important, I would say it's like a thinking group, but like with a lot of thinking about diversity and inclusion, like a, a very important group yesterday. And, and they'd send it off and said, sorry, with godmothers have a lot of responsibilities. So you're making <laughs> me laugh because it was really an honor to be asked to be part of this group and organization. But he knew when he was asking me that he was asking me to take, you know, I'm pretty busy and one more thing on the plate. I have to say, at least at least my son's a senior in high school and then I'll, I won't have to be raising kids anymore in the middle of all this. That was probably the hardest part, I guess, and then finishing my PhD. But my kids in particular... Having to travel was really painful, brutal sometimes. Yeah. So let's take a step back for the listener to Palmer Lucky, how you first met up in his coming to Sundance to help you develop the headset, because you weren't allowed to take a $50,000 set of goggles from your lab or something. So, and also just give people the context of who he is. You mentioned it quickly, but... I think they might be interested. The, I was a senior research fellow in immersive journalism at the journalism school, and I was developing these ideas. And I was working at a lab that was mostly a military-funded lab, and I was kind of co-opting the technology to try to do... Uh, first, I used some of the material, actually, when I rebuilt the Gitmo project for the Moscow Museum of Modern Art into a full virtual reality walk-around experience. And then, at the time, Palmer was like the lab's intern. Uh, I think he prefers to be called the lab tech, but really, you know, he was like an intern. And he was helping build these goggles. And uh, he was a student at Long Beach State at the time. So he wasn't actually going to USC. And in fact, he was working as a journalist at Long Beach State. And I was trying to help him get into the journalism school at USC. Was he 20 years old or something at this time? No, he was like 18. Wow. Or 19. I mean, to Palmer's credit, he had the largest personal goggle collections in his garage at his house. I mean, he was obsessed with making goggles. Lots of hats off to what he did. And I remember trying to go around when he made the first goggles to try to get people to invest in his, what he was doing without a lot of success. But anyway, we had this one very expensive pair of goggles and Palmer was trying to make lower cost goggles. And when hunger got into 
Sundance for January of 2012, the head of the lab was like, you can't take that $50,000 pair of goggles. And the pressure was on Palmer to make something that, and by the way, there were a lot of other people working in the lab to make it, you know, right? Palmer was not a coder. Uh, I think one of the greatest unsung heroes in all of this is this guy named Ty Fan, who did a lot of the necessary coding to make everything work. There was John Brennan and Bradley Newman. Those are people who I feel like really should be also part of the history books. The day that the goggles were going to leave for Sundance, and they were still making me a little bit nauseous, and I wouldn't let them get on the truck to leave, and then somebody was leaving to drive, and they were meant to go in the morning, and the truck left at like 11 o'clock or midnight, and, and everybody in the lab was working together to try to fix the code and the distortion, and the and there they went, and then Palmer ended up crashing on my couch in Sundance and driving the truck around for us there in the van and driving it home for us. And nine months later, he started Oculus Rift. And a couple of years later, he became a billionaire or, well, he sold his company for a few billion dollars. I don't know which part he got and the VCs got, but, and then we have very different trajectories. I wanted to do immersive journalism and stories of social impact that matter. And now he's using, it's got building a company to track migrants at the border for the military. We ended up using our skills in very different ways. When did you begin to explore coding? When I was in high school, uh, one of my father's best friends actually started the computer uh, department at UCLA. And we used to go to his house and he had some of the earliest computer games. And I remember I was on it and I remember him kept pulling me out of the chair and putting my brother in the seat. Cut to, I went to Venice High School in Venice, California and got into Harvard when I was 17. And I had never been to the East Coast in my life when I showed up for school. But they had this basic programming course that you had to pass. And I was really good at it. I was teaching all my friends how to do it. I mean, it just was, I just loved it, really. I otherwise was relatively underprepared for a lot of the challenges of Harvard. And I didn't continue to code because I just, people were like, oh, it's really, really hard. And I was like, oh, I guess it must be really hard if these Harvard people are saying it's really hard too, right? So it took me a long time to have the confidence. So really, it wasn't until I was after 40 that I was like, I don't care. I am learning to code. Yeah. So 20 years later, I was in it. At that point, we had YouTube and you could how to code on YouTube. There was a guy named Berg Zergarcade. Really taught me a lot of my Unity programming. But you would recommend that folks learn to code in if they're interested in being in this area? I hope not, because kind of the same way, you don't know how, need to know how to code to create a website anymore. You can go into Wix or, you know, one of the things, I'm hoping that immersive content creation is going to be just as simple. Everybody knows how to edit now. Everybody knows how to edit video. And I mean, that was my goal with reach.love, which we're, you know, we have like a little beta. If you're, if you want to poke around the beta.reach.love, you can, and it, it lets you um, start to assemble immersive elements without knowing how to code. And we've got a little better version coming out, uh, hopefully very soon. We're thinking about making it open source so we can get a lot of people to help contribute to its creation and fully democratize immersive content creation. When we think about the old computers, right, and how ridiculously hard they were to make anything happen, and how everybody runs around with an iPhone or a smartphone and has a computer in their pocket all day long, that's the same future that we're looking at with immersive stuff. And we know that Apple's pulled their top hardware guy into the AR VR team. I can't believe it's not going to just turn into glasses. So you don't, you know, all of us have our neck bent all day long, looking down, our shoulders hunched. I think that's going to end. That, that would be fantastic. They call that tech neck in the uh, medical field. Tech neck. I've never even heard of that. Tech neck. Yeah, it's a yeah. problem. It's a problem for teenagers and uh, everybody, for that, for that matter, who spends too much time looking at their lap. So I think that you'll have edge computing, which means that the information is going to be stored in computers in the cloud. And 
the data will come to your glasses so you won't have some huge heavy thing on your face. Hopefully, people listening to this podcast will think about all the good ways we can use it and then think about ways that we can work together to try to prevent too much of the bad ways of it getting used as well. Because it, it will. It will happen. It will happen. It'll be used for propaganda. And- you are on the good side versus the evil side of the <laughs> development of virtual reality because in any technology, in any new device and something, there's always somebody just in the for-profit or in the exploitation department that is working twice as hard as you're working. So I just hope that more people follow your path, more people take your program, more people watch your movies so that we can see that development take a turn for good. It's always an uphill battle, I think, to have people take the highest road when developing something new, if they can see a financial way to exploit it to the rest of the world. The entrepreneurial spirit in me says, how can we make it both in a lot of cases, right? We know medical fields, we know for engineering. Well, I can see it for simulation, for training, for education, Yes, education, surgery, any of that sort of thing. Somebody sent me a a clip the other day of having augmented reality of an opera taking place in your house. The environment was your actual home, but the singers and so forth were in your living room, which is pretty yeah. interesting for a kind of a more accessible experience for opera. So that was a, just another new development somebody was working on. There's so many creative people out there. We know that there's just been a boom in the way that creative people have been able to have outlets and share their material. And I think that I hope that they'll soon have a path to be able to be equally creative in the immersive way in both AR and VR without necessarily having to know how to code. There's just so many things of collaborating together, all be doable. I mean, you know, the metaverse, right? Everybody's been talking more and more about the metaverse. Um, What is that going to look like when we're working together? I'm the first one to say, being in person is the best. These are other systems that are going to be part of our future. And we should be thinking about it across from gaming all the way to people in assisted living who were so isolated because of COVID. They could have had much nice, you know, much more robust connections. Mm. Uh, hopefully, if those are the kind of things we'll be thinking about for the future. Even now, this simple loss of that connection where people have now accepted Zoom as a way to communicate. And we went through phases of becoming our own IT department and being our own print shop and our own each thing. So I have the feeling uh, this is quite on the cusp, especially now that we're looking for other ways to be a part of the world and experience things in a newer way. So I'm really impressed by uh, the work you're doing. Uh, Maybe you could tell me a little bit about Emblematic Group's new reach web platform, which sounds like it's a whole room scale virtual reality. Reach.love, which is a WebXR, as they call it, platform. XR being extended reality. And we say WebXR because you could just build it straight in a browser. You don't have to download anything. There's no apps associated with it. And then when you publish it, it fits out like a URL. So you can either put it up on your website, you can look at it on a phone, or you can play back in a headset and walk fully around. We had also an augmented reality component, which is not up and running now where you could just remove the background so you could place it in your living room like you were just talking about with the opera. And the whole goal of that is just like, I know how ridiculous a null reference exception is in code, right? But sometimes a null reference exception is just on the Unity side, the game engine side, you put a small letter I and in your code, you put a capital letter I and the two just can't read each other. Yeah, I know, even with spell checking, right? You think, you think. (laughs) So null reference exceptions, 
used to make me out of my mind. <laughs> Those are the sort of things that I hope that we can eliminate. And we're also working on a spatial timeline. How do we think about assembling content where both space and time are considered in the construction? And that's that's been really fun to be thinking about. Well, it's really cool, the stuff that you're doing. And I know that you have the responsibility of being a godmother, but have you considered adopting a highway as well, just for <laughs> for fun? That's very funny. Reach, adopted by Reach.Love. I love it. <laughs> I know that people are going to explore you further. Anybody that has not seen your work or heard you, I hope that they will look you up. They just look at the profile that we have on our podcast website and Google you. There's all kinds of amazing things that you've done. You're making great social impact and changing the world for the better. And it was a terrific today to have, I guess, some reality with somebody that's an expert in virtual reality. Thank you so much for your interest and your time. But I hope that your listeners will find it informative and, and engaging. I think the world of you and the work you're doing. So cheers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.